You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Interesting, interesting discussion about, uh, you know, religious freedom and really about tolerance. There's a great quote that... Um, that I think everybody needs to think of when it comes to, to religious uh, freedom is is this idea of tolerance. Robert Green Ingersoll once said, Tolerance is giving to every other human being every right that you claim for yourself. And the hard part, I think, is for so many years, um, because people have such strong feelings about uh, homosexuality, and and really not fully understanding it because it is a concept or an issue that we don't really fully understand. Um, a lot, you know, a lot just frame it immediately as a sin, um, and and yet there's so many other factors in play: biological, psychological, social, emotional factors that all go into play, and so. People have been intolerant of it and and not quite understanding it, as Robert Smith says and just taught us that the key might be to just understand what's going on with these other people. Because when you don't understand, you set yourself up to be – to discriminate, to be intolerant of a person without understanding even fully why. You cannot believe in what they're doing and you can even believe that what they're doing is a sin in your belief system. But you can still also tolerate and care for the person. You can also still give them certain basic rights, um, which like the right to to be able to go care for their loved one and be able to take care of the affairs of their loved one and be able to even be insured by their their partner, partner's insurance program. But those were rights that weren't given, and they weren't given for years. So the LGBT community fought back. And now legally have got those rights that they were not afforded earlier. And if they're not careful, they'll now start impinging and basically doing to the religious believers what the religious believers had done to them. Turnabout is fair play, they would say. But in reality, tolerance and intolerance in either direction is not – it's not acceptable. It's not the principle we need to go by. So – Anyway, it's uh, it's a hard, hard discussion. But if we could just get back to the old love one another kind of concept, man, and, and let's just learn to share our differences and still be loving. It can all it can all coexist. We cannot agree and still care for one another and respect each other's rights and freedoms. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Life is full of pressure. Have you noticed it? Just enough to stress you out and make life kind of difficult Um but the reality is, and, and we, we hear more and more, that people are feeling more stress, more anxiety, more people are being diagnosed with anxiety. And yet, how can that be, right? I mean, is life just that much more stressful or are we just losing our grip? Are we losing our ability to find the peace amidst all of the pressure? So I, I actually um, – I've had a really weird experience with this. So I have a lot of clients. I teach um, marriage skills, conflict resolution skills, teach them how to communicate. 
and, and strengthen their relationship. But I found a lot of couples, what they're struggling with is one member of the relationship or the, or the partnership, one of them may have more anxiety than the other. And that anxiety plays out in really strange ways in the marriage. They, they, you may have a partner that worries about a lot of stuff. You may have a partner that might be more introverted and doesn't want to go to every party that uh, you want to go to. Or they stress about it and they, they would rather stay home and read a book and you know, watch Netflix and hang out. And you might be thinking, what is your deal? It's, this isn't fun. This isn't uh, the way to live. We can't always worry about everything. So how do we manage the anxiety if we're going through it? Um, as, as, and, and I created a workshop for it and um, put it on my website, uh, uh, matttownsend.com. But the workshop is really about how we figure out how to get through it. So let's talk a little bit about what anxiety is and what you can do about it. Anxiety, by the way, is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, physical changes like increased blood pressure. Everyone, by the way, should experience anxiety, right? If I drop a cobra in your cubicle, you should experience some stress, right? Very natural thing. You should have the worries. The difference with anxiety disorders or people that have an anxiety disorder is their anxiety is, is kind of – it's constant. It's permanent. About 18% of the U.S. population, 25% of adolescents ages 13 to 18, 18% of adults suffer uh, and experience anxiety above and beyond, just a natural state of stress. And so it's a big deal. Now, one thing to remember, though, is not all stress is bad. And that's one of the downsides to trying to deal with anxiety is a lot of us would just rather go medicate our stress and take drugs, take anything we can to to not have to engage um, or just avoid life. But the problem with it is a lot of your greatest growth in life is going to take place when there's a little stress on board. So you got to know that there's this one type of stress called eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, which is a very helpful type of stress. 77% of Americans regularly experience physical symptoms caused by stress. 73% of Americans regularly experience psychological symptoms caused by stress, and 76% of Americans cited that money and work as the leading causes of their stress. Now, interestingly, um, eustress is a healthy type of stress. So the way this works is eustress would be the fact that you love your job and you you know you you have to pick up your game you have to work really hard you focus on going and doing that really big presentation and sure you're a little stressed out on the way there you're stressed out but then you hit a home run and life is great that stress is called you stress that is the healthy stress and if you have enough of it in your life you feel energized you feel focused right you feel excited about life you really feel like your work is is produces results That's the good stress. If you have too much of that going on in life, that's called distress. You start to get anxious, fatigue, exhaustion, breakdown. So at at some point in our lives, we have to know when we're moving from the good stress to the unhealthy stress. So think about it like – think about it like physical exercise. Nobody necessarily loves to feel the stress of running on a treadmill, 
But once you've but once you've kind of gotten in shape and you can run on a treadmill and maybe put in 30 or 40 minutes on a treadmill, that is a good amount of stress that helps keep you healthier. If you don't ever want to have that experience of feeling the stress of a treadmill, then you could fall into kind of an unhealthy state where you're not challenged, you can't do things, you can't even live at an optimal level, or you could actually spend too much time on the treadmill and it becomes distressful and makes you less healthy. So life is about balance, right? So how do we do that? How do we get into life to a point that we, we can balance this anxiety and this stress? So think about your own existence. Do you, do you look forward to your work? Do you look forward to your work day? Do you dread it? Do you have this feeling of uh, just doom and gloom? There's no one way to um, to kind of assume that uh, you're just a, you have an anxiety disorder unless you start looking at how your day plays out. Do you do you have dread? Do you have fear? Do you always wonder what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you wonder what? Do you worry about things that you said yesterday? And maybe obsess about it and think about it many times today. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Why did I say that? If you can't let go of yesterday and you're always worried about tomorrow, you're probably going to feel more and more stress. And stress is normal, right? Think about it. If you naturally spend a lot of time in tomorrow, you should feel stressed because the problem with tomorrow is you can't live tomorrow. So you can call it whatever you want to call it. You can call it anxiety if you want. You can call it stress. I don't call it anxiety usually. I call it worry. I don't call it fear. I don't call it concern. These are all words you may have. Apprehension, unease, agitation, angst, tension. You might have the, the dem dare jitters, but the reality is you probably have worry. And how do you handle worry? Uh, let me give you just a few of my favorite little tricks about worry, okay? And I promise they work. Number one way on earth to manage your worry, and we've talked about it on the show quite a bit, is the fact that um, you got to breathe. When people are stressed, your breathing changes. Think about it. If all of a sudden you heard somebody, you're walking down an, eye, an alley in downtown New York and somebody you know, starts a chainsaw behind you, <laughs> your body is going to kick into some natural fight-or-flight mode. When that fight-or-flight mode is on, your, bre- your body is going to start breathing differently, probably more shallow breathing, right? Because you got to get enough oxygen going, but you got to get that heart pumping. You're going to breathe shallow. You don't have time to take enormous, big, deep breaths. Your body will tighten up. And as you tighten up and get ready to start running, game on. And that's what happens to a lot of people. If I, if I told you today that you're going to have to be on national television in front of three million people and talk about something, that might stress you out. And what you'll notice happens immediately, your breathing changes. You don't tend to breathe as deeply. You don't tend to uh, get as much oxygen in your system. And when that's going on, you feel stress. The natural byproduct of not breathing enough is stress. If I sat on your chest... It would stress you out, I'm pretty sure. It would stress you out. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had – remember back in the day, your friend would sit on top of you and hold your arms down and all of a sudden you start freaking out and you can't breathe. I can't breathe. You start hyperventilating. That's what happens when worry kicks in. So the number one tool is to learn active breathing techniques. And 
there, it's hard to teach. It's really not because it's it's easier to see, I think, healthy breathing. But all you have to do is go to YouTube and look up active breathing. And there are incredible tools online to start learning how to breathe deeply. I learned as a, as a journalist um, and, and an anchor, a television reporter anchor, right before I would go on air, I would always take a deep cleansing breath. I try to fill my lungs up with air. I try to hold it. And then I would breathe it out slowly. And when I did that, amazingly, I got rid of the jitters. The jitters literally just disappeared. And they disappear because once your body's oxygenated, you don't need to feel the worry. Many believe 80% of anxiety issues can be managed just simply by breathing. More effective, healthy breathing. Another tool that is so powerful for you is your brain and where you put your thoughts. So once you start to notice your worry, a lot of us start arguing about the worry. I had a great story with my son once where um, he had a little social anxiety and he didn't want to go to his this guitar performance class we had signed him up for. He asked to go to this class, just so you know. It wasn't parents forcing him. He wanted to go to it until it was time to go. Then he started giving us a bunch of lip and story like, I don't want to go. These people, I don't even know these people. I'm not going to learn anything. I don't want to go for two days. And what if it's stupid? I I want to go with my friends. And we had a million things that he was bringing up. When you start to feel worry, you tend to bring up a lot of nonsense, the things that he doesn't like. Well, what if these people aren't there? A lot of what ifs, a lot of, you know, possible things that might happen. A lot of the teacher's stupid. They don't understand me. I don't want to go to school. This is stupid. Scouts are stupid. Whatever you try to get your kids to do that they don't want to do. Um, In the end, don't take the bait. Don't fight over all of these things that aren't the real issue. This had nothing to do with every excuse my son was giving me for why he didn't want to go to the guitar class. It was his worry. His social worry was kicking in. So what I learned to talk with him about is, son, this is your worry kicking in, isn't it? You're just worried. So how are you going to handle your worry? There's only one question you need to worry about when it comes to your worry. It's how you're going to handle your worry. Don't fight about whether you should do it. You've already committed to do it. We've already paid the money. So I basically told him, we've already paid the money. You are going to this camp this guitar camp for two days, you're going. So the only question we need to figure out is how are you going to handle your worry? And then we can start worrying about how we handle the worry. And by doing that, I forced my son to deal with his worry instead of making up a bunch of stories that aren't the real issue. Does that make sense? Then I just have to give him a bunch of tools to handle the worry, one of which is breathing. Let's practice our breathing. Another thing we can worry about or practice is our thinking. What are we thinking about? Give me some things that you know that, of how this will work for you. I just coached a person on, that had to give a really big speech, and they were, very, they were terrified about having to give the speech. And they're worried that they're going to break into hives. They're worried that their face is going to go red. And I'm like, okay, so great. So let's imagine you get up there and you uh, – I go, have you ever broken into hives before doing a speech? She's like, no. But I've seen somebody break into hives and it was horrible. So you've never seen or noticed you broke into hives? No. So if that's the case, what are the odds you'll break into hives? Well, I don't know, but I don't want to risk it. Let's say you did break into hives 
Could you wear clothes that would make it so you didn't – no one could see your neck breaking into hives? Well, yeah, I've got this really nice blouse that could cover – great. Let's wear that. What else would happen if you started getting worried and your face turned red? What else could you do? And we started talking about solutions for how they could handle it. And amazingly, once you start to address the issues that you can handle, a lot of times your worries kick down, right? One of the rules about talking and dealing with your worry is focus where you have influence and power to influence. Don't just focus on what you're concerned about. If you focus on your concerns, your concerns tend to grow. If you focus on where you have influence, your ability to influence it grows. I remember giving a speech once after uh, in, a, in, a, in a speaking class in, in college and um, saw somebody really having a physical breakdown in the middle of their speech. And then I went and gave my speech. And immediately after my speech, I ran to the restroom and I looked at myself in the mirror because I wanted to see if I was experiencing or showing, demonstrating any of the physiological effects of a breakdown. And I got this confirmation that I wasn't. I was a little sweaty, but I wasn't red-faced. I wasn't breaking into hives. I wasn't – my eyes weren't bulging. I wasn't hyperventilating. And once I got that fixed in my brain, I could then know that for me, I don't respond that way. And that gave me more and more power. One of the – another powerful way to manage your anxiety is to recognize it. Call it that. Say it out loud. Wow, I'm feeling worried. Because you're, you're going to have to see it sometime, right? Once you start to see that you're feeling the worry and, and owning the label of it, then you actually can, you can do something more about it. Another powerful tool to managing anxiety is simply um, staying present. Because our inclination is to – and you'll notice a lot of your worry is going to come from your past or your future. Worrying about what might happen, worrying about what did happen – The more I can stay in the now and work on what I can work on, it creates some powerful, powerful stuff. Another thing I teach in my uh, worry program and my anxiety program is that you need to build what I call your calmness code. There are certain things that build more calmness, right? And I need to know what my code is. And so over my lifetime, I've been figuring out – I know before I do a big event or a big speech, sleep helps me. I know that I need to be prepared. I need to know my stuff. I need to trust and believe in my abilities. I need to think back to all of my successful experiences. And as I build my own code, I know I need to probably not have caffeine on board. uh, Or sometimes that will create more anxiety for me. I know I need to have some good healthy food in me. I also know before I speak, I can't have just eaten. So I've learned all of these little tricks uh, before I speak. And I now it's interesting because I speak so much, like two or three times a week, and get paid to speak. It's, um, it changes. It changes your confidence level. It changes who you are. I remember being terrified. Uh, I was the youngest presenter for a, a major training company called Franklin Covey Company, And um, I was this young punk that would go out and try to figure out, you know, I'm going to go speak for this company and I'm, I'm, you know, half the age of a lot of people in the room. And I remember having to just get my position clear and I I remember thinking, you know what, I just need to remember that this, none of this is about me. 
Nobody came here, and I, I used to write this on the, the the little workbooks I would teach from uh, my my facilitator manual. I would write the phrase, "Matt, nobody came here to see you. Just deliver the message. Just teach the principles." And I found a lot of peace in that. Nobody was there. Nobody traveled to go to a public workshop to see Matt Townsend when I was supposed to be teaching the seven habits of highly effective people. Just deliver the principles. And I found that when I lost myself by consciously putting myself in a different reframe, it worked. Amazingly, it works. And that's the cool thing about uh, worry it it can be your guide it can tell you that you need to pay attention and it doesn't need to it doesn't need to own you and the powerful thing about it is once you start to take your life back and not let the worry or the anxiety dominate you have now conquered something that is huge and now you can start to offer your greatest offerings in the world because you've conquered you've conquered your weakness Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. You can find out more. Just just look up the show, The Matt Townsend Show or matttownsend.com. Tons of material out there, all free, just here to help. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Scientists are constantly looking for ways to improve and enhance our lives. And then you know what? The companies are just so quick to buy it and get it out on the shelf so you can you can use it. In fact, just recently, research regarding antiseptics found that the chemicals uh, have little benefit but a lot of risk for in- individuals. So think about how many times you've seen uh, or thought that, oh, this is an antiseptic. This is This is going to protect me from all of the dangerous uh, things of this world, if I just put it on my hands, if I use this soap, this antibacterial soap, my life and my children will be so much happier. The reality is, according to uh, our next guest, you you need to be careful. Uh, With a new FDA ruling in September, banned the use of 19 antiseptics from household soaps. But uh, what does this mean to you? What does it mean to me? Dr. Sarah Andes joins us. She's an associate professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at Penn State University. Dr. Andes, thank you. uh, Addies, sorry. Dr. Addies, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, it's great to be here. This is this is frustrating because I thought all of these antibacterial soaps were were saving my children's lives. And yet in the end. It's just giving, putting more chemicals into our bodies. It certainly is. It's putting chemicals in on our bodies, in our bodies, and into the environment. And in this case, it actually turns out that the good old-fashioned plain soap and water is just as good. Really? It, in fact, the new FDA ruling as of September 2nd bans the use of triclosan and triclocarbon. Talk to us. What is triclosan? Triclosan is a chemical that will stop the growth of bacteria. And it is first was actually brought out to be used in healthcare settings, and it's still used in healthcare settings, and that's a great place for it to be. Um, but because it is stable, it is, um, can be put into lots of different things, it started being incorpor- incorporated by manufacturers into lots of household products to make things antibacterial. Hmm. Um, now, but bacteria 
it's not all bad, right? Exactly. That's one of the really cool things that's come out um, in probably the last like 15 years is the realization that we have lots of good bacteria. If you take the human body, we have more bacterial cells, 10 times more bacterial cells in and on our bodies than human cells that make up our bodies. We're actually kind of walking carriers for <laughs> microbes. That sounds but gross. Really good for us. But, but they're good for us. So they're bacteria, they're, they're healthy bacteria, and I guess they help ward off other problems? Yeah, they can. They do all kinds of neat things. So they can help you digest your food. There's actually some vitamins that the bacteria make for us. Hmm. Um, it's pretty cool. We're learning there's was a recent finding from uh, late summer that there's actually a type of bacteria that lives in your nose, mm. and that can actually make a chemical that kills bad bacteria that make you sick. And and yet, and then we we put together all these chemicals to go start destroying bacteria, even though so much of it is healthy and helpful to us. Exactly. What what's the impact? What does it what does I guess is that just weaken our immunity? Does it does it are we more ill because of it? So it's not clear at this point what the impact is on individuals. The big risk of having these antibacterials in all of our household products is that these bacterial these chemicals, especially triclosan, can cause the bacteria to become resistant. So bacteria are really good at adapting and changing. And if you try to kill them, they're going to find a way to survive. Mm. And one of the ways that they find to survive can actually also prevent them from being killed by antibiotics, which are drugs that we take when we're sick from a bacterial infection. So this is leading, I guess, to some of these superbugs, these these bugs that we can't get rid of. Yes, that's one of the big risks with putting all these antibacterials into the world around us. For any individual, it may not pose a direct risk, but if you use these, if it's in your soap, it's in your shampoo, every day you're using that, it's rinsing off into our wastewater, into the environment, and as these resistance genes start um, emerging in bacteria, they can spread to other bacteria, and then we can really put these miraculous drugs that have made the world such a wonderful place in terms of modern medicine, they could potentially become obsolete. In fact, it, it actually scared me to when I read what you wrote uh, in the conversation about this now shows up in breast milk. It shows up in so many places. Um, the, the, these, these chemicals, we just kind of keep – I guess they're now – we're now cross-infecting, and, and it's just in our system now. They are. Man. They're in our system. They're in soils. Um, they can survive in wastewater treatment plants. So they're everywhere around us. Does Why was triclosan even needed? If, if soap and water you know, got rid of some of, the, some of the ugly bacteria or enough of it, why were we, were we even playing with these other chemicals? So they started in healthcare settings, and that's kind of a different scenario. When doctors and nurses use these, they're actually not doing it to protect themselves. They're doing it to protect patients. So in hospitals, you have people who are immunocompromised and more susceptible. So we need stronger um, antibacterials there. But in the household, we don't really need them. Hmm. And I'm actually, I'm not an expert from the soap industry, and I couldn't really tell you why they started putting them in. But, but don't you remember did. the commercials that are like, 
th- this antibacterial is used in hospitals. And so it's you're like, oh, well, if it's good enough for an operating room, it's good enough for my bathroom. And all it makes, I mean, it makes good marketing sense. It does indeed. But with the, but now we're over killing it. I mean, it makes sense in an operating unit. It doesn't necessarily make sense just day to day. Right. Exactly. You know, surgeons in hospitals wear scrubs for a particular reason, and it makes sense there. But everyone in the world's not walking around wearing scrubs <laughs> from hospitals, right? <laughs> Thank heavens, huh? And but I guess with the FDA now stepping out, I mean, this seems like a, a pretty bold move against this. Is this an effort to to really reverse the the trend of and and really I guess the creation of the resistant you know bacteria exactly so this is a first step that is part of a large worldwide effort to try to reduce antibiotic resistance the um, UN actually just held a conference on antibiotic resistance and the more we're using um, anti microbials that could encourage resistance or using antibiotics inappropriately, we're putting our current arsenal to fight infections at risk. There are estimates that have come out of these that if the antibiotic resistance um, continues to increase at current rates, by 2050, we could have, um, what was the number here, 10 million people a year dying from antibiotic-resistant infections. Oh, my word. Is is this something um, almost like inoculations, like vaccines, where if 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 eighty percent of us quit doing it, we would we would pretty much make everyone else healthier? Does that make sense? Like, it, it, what if we can't get some people to quit buying this stuff, to quit using this stuff? Do, do they not? They keep putting it back into the system, though, don't they? They'll. Or will I it mean, just I can't... be so diluted that it won't? Right. So, so if consumers reduce demand for it, then that puts the pressure on companies to stop selling it if no one's buying it. Right. Um, you know, so at every individual is part of a larger, you know, part of society. So individuals can, as part of a group, make a difference. And yeah. hopefully we can reach a point where the few people who are still want these aren't having as big an impact because we're not all doing it. Mm. Um, and I guess the, the FDA making this decision, that's kind of the first big step. What, what do you see is, would be the next step forward? So the, this current ruling just applies to soaps that you use with water. So when you wash your hands, when you've got a sink nearby and you can wash your hands really well with water, rinse everything away, um, that's what these products, this FDA ruling applies to these products. Okay. Currently, the next step are all these hand gels and hand sanitizers yeah. that you use when you don't have water. Okay, so, so they're taking a look at those now. But I guess really part of it right now is FDA or not, we as people could, could lower demand by just stopping it. Exactly. And for those, those hand rubs, you can find ones that are alcohol-based. Okay, yeah. And alcohol kills bacteria by a different mechanism that doesn't lead to antibiotic resistance. Yeah, so if you feel the need to do that, and they do it at hospitals all the time, just go more alcohol-based versus uh, antibacterial. Exactly, and that makes sense. You know, say you're out on a hike and you want to stop and have lunch and, you know, you hands have gotten dirty, you can take out an alcohol rub and rinse off your hands, mm-hmm. and that's great to do. Yeah. 
Well, that's basic. Come on, Sarah. Yeah. Uh, let's <laughs> it's take not a, exactly <laughs> rocket science. It's not. It's, it's just biochemistry and molecular biology. Um, yes. Let's take a break. We're speaking with, uh, with Dr. Sarah Adiz, and she is teaching us about these uh, – really, folks, what we thought was an innovation that may have now gone too far. Antibiotic, uh, anti, uh, antiseptic. This chemistry gets in our system, folks, and it's creating havoc. It's a system we live in. You tweak one part of the system, you're going to impact the other part of the system. We'll take a break, come back, give you more insight on what else you can do to, uh, to live healthier, happier uh, when it comes to bacteria, how to cohabitate, I guess, with some of the bacteria and see it as a positive thing, some of it anyway. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Sarah Ades, and she is an associate professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at Penn State University. She's walking us through an article she wrote in theconversation.com about why you should dispense with antibacterial soaps. The FDA has already made a ruling that you you don't you can't you don't need to be using antibacterial soaps. And uh, and 17 other antiseptics from your household soap. So the benefit of it in the end, I guess, is um, it's, it's going to make us healthier because it allows us to not create and not be a part of creating more antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria. Have I got that right, Sarah? Exactly, exactly. And right now we start with the soap, but eventually we can move to every product. Yes, what other products have triclosan in it? So um, they have been incorporated into lots of different kind of products, into baby toys, um, a whole range of things. Yeah, pacifiers, I saw that. Mm-hmm. Why? I guess just antibacterial. But, I mean, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't really speak from the manufacturing point of view of why you would do this. Um, presumably, there's a demand. Right. And and then you were also talking about hand sanitizers, hand gels, ham, hand rubs that have some of the antibacterial uh, chemicals in it. You don't need to go that route anymore either. You could just go to the alcohol, alcohol-based uh, hand sanitizers and it's a safe, it's a, different, it's a different approach and it won't – I guess that doesn't lead to the antibiotic resistance. Exactly. And there have been studies even from rural villages in Pakistan that hand washing with soap and water does as much to prevent the spread of disease as an antibacterial. So really, water is what you need. Wash your hands well. So this isn't just like passing your hands, you know, for two seconds under the water. You know, really wash them like, um, you know, wash the backs, wash in between your fingers. There's some great videos. And this sounds kind of silly. Like, do I need to actually watch a video on how to wash my hands? But the CDC has a great site on how to wash your hands. No, I have brothers-in-laws that are doctors. And when they wash their hands, it's it's an art. Yes. You know what I mean? You're like, wow. 
that's a lot of work. Um, I guess part of this, though, too, is I mean, so wash your hands with soap and water whenever you. I mean, when you can. Only we probably really only need to use these gels and these sanitizers when it's efficient. But default to just soap and water. Yes, exactly. Is I guess as we um, this this gets into a weird systemic problem. It seems like where a chemical company could make a product. Uh, we could market it incredibly well, but simultaneously, it's systemically creating other issues. Um, right, it's, is there any oversight for for just the general products? I mean, I know, I mean, I guess the FDA, but or I mean, and other organizations. But how do we make sure that we aren't eventually creating a serious pandemic? Well, so that's the the role of organizations like the FDA is they have rules for new products that come out for consumer goods, and there's different types of rules for different types of products. But that's their job is to um, try to protect us. And in some cases, the science takes a while to figure out what is going to be harmful and what's not. If if there's if there's positive or healthy bacteria just all over us and all in our world and even in our dirt. Um, I, I guess having an aversion to dirt and, I mean, this idea of what clean looks like, are we actually making ourselves more sick just by how clean we keep our homes or how clean we – I mean, it's almost like, you know, again, a surgical center clean instead of maybe allowing just healthy bacteria in life. Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting area of current research where people are trying to address this question. You can imagine it's actually pretty complicated. But um, there is evidence that shows that we need contact with bacteria. It helps develop our immune systems. Um, it Having kind of the good bacteria, it can um, help prevent certain diseases. So we do actually run risk by making our worlds too clean, not just because we're trying to kill things and that's leading to antibiotic resistance, but in general for our own health, we need bacteria around us. We've mm. evolved to have that. Yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't re- realize we had a guest on somewhere that we talked about just in a cup of dirt, there's even serotonin, there's other chemicals in dirt and in other parts of uh, just in other things we touch and interact with throughout the day that are so beneficial. Um, I, I guess what what advice do you give us as families, as parents, to um, to what level and standard of clean is good enough? So it's it's a lot of it's a common sense kind of thing. Um, where you can pick up bacteria that are harmful to you are things like we've all heard these warnings when you cook that yeah. raw chicken does carry bacteria that can make you very sick. So if you're cooking with raw meats, wash up quickly after you do that. Wash your hands, wash the cutting boards, wash the knives, and do all that with hot soap and water. So there's a case where you do need to wash right away, and you want to get those bacteria away. Um, After you use the restroom, you need to wash your hands. But in everyday kind of comings and goings, you don't need to be washing your, you know, washing your hands or using a hand sanitizer every 30 seconds. Hmm. The, um, I did have a doctor once tell me that, you know, you got to be careful because I, I was biting my nails. And he's like, you got to be careful because now we have all of these uh, antibiotic-resistant bugs and 
just eventually little silly habits like that could impact you. Yep. There's things, um, you know, you can always, you might want to be careful about public water fountains. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, so <laughs> I guess that's the thing is it's it's also I mean, think about people sharing a river back in the day. I mean, it was. Yes. And now we're all worried about a public water fountain or I mean, even our little drink, our cups that we bring to keep refilling up our water. Um, some of those you can tell haven't been washed for years. So, I mean, yeah. I guess in the end, it's just it's just common sense, isn't it? It's common sense. Yeah. And use use regular soap. Yeah. Don't use the antibacterial stuff. So anything um, that's basically marked antibacterial, avoid it. Yeah, find another. Find just, the alternative yeah. that's not marked with that. Right. And it's probably just fine. It's probably less expensive. Yeah, that's probably true, too. We might save some money. Well, Sarah, we appreciate you. Thank you for your insight on this. Uh, we're, we're going to make an effort. Let no more antibacterial soaps and other things, hand sanitizers. Sarah Aides is her name, and she's a, a great resource. If you want, you can go find her article, Why You Should Dispense with Antibacterial Soaps. It's a great insight from a true blue professor of biochemistry and molecular biology. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, so much to talk about. We'll be talking about the fear of missing out. You don't need to be afraid of antibiotics anymore. Now you also don't need to be afraid of missing out. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever traveled really far for a high school reunion or maybe skipped out on running errands because you didn't want your old friends to get together without you? How about when you got on a Facebook and saw your relatives' perfect vacation pictures? Did you immediately start booking your own? Do you ever feel motivated to do things because you fear you'll miss out on something if you don't do them? Well, there is a term for this, and today our producer, Leanna Tan, will teach each of us what it's like to have what's called FOMO. You know what I realized I don't understand very well? Me time. I pack my schedule so full of activities and social events that I never really stop to just be me. Then one day, my friend told me that I have FOMO. What is FOMO, you may ask? Don't worry, I got the definition for you right here, straight from Google. Is anxiety that an exciting or interesting event may currently be happening elsewhere. It's the fear of missing out. The fear that if you miss a party or an event, you'll miss out on something great. A 2013 study showed that those who experience higher levels of FOMO also reported lower levels of overall life satisfaction. Man, this is bad. I started realizing all the FOMO around me. Unrealistically perfect pictures on Facebook, sleep-deprived and partied-out classmates, tears of regret wetting my friends' pillows. FOMO is plaguing the world. I had to ward my friends. I had to bring awareness. And I knew just where to start. I immediately ran to the phone and called up my friend, Christopher Takashima. Hello? Hi, Christopher. Okay, I know you're busy. You're going to classes and in-between stuff, but I just had to call you because I'm a little worried about you. So I just, I need you to answer some questions for me, okay? Okay. I know that you have a slight obsession with concerts. Or so I've heard. (laughs) 
How many concerts have you been to? Twenty five or so. What's the thrill of a concert? It's amazing. It's like、um, meeting someone that you've talked to online for a long time, and just like the energy of the crowd makes me feel like I'm on a different planet almost. Describe to me the emotions that go on inside your head when those tickets go on sale. So there's just like a rush. I just get super excited and nervous. It's like on a date, but like on steroids. You don't know if it's going to work out, but like the probability of it being cool just gives you a rush. So, have you ever crowd surfed? Oh yeah. When you're crowd surfing, are you thinking of like, wow, this ceiling looks great, the lights, the music? Are you like thinking their ring is jabbing my side? They have no, long I, nails. No, I don't really notice. They lifted me up, and I crowd surfed all the way to the front. It was just crazy. Like you could see everyone's heads, and you're just like at the top, and yeah, it's just unreal. So, what's the most that you've Paid for a ticket or the most effort you've gone to in order to get to a concert? Radiohead, for sure. I paid around a thousand bucks total. Just to go to that concert, two hundred fifty bucks for a mediocre ticket, four hundred dollars、um, round trip flight to New York, plus like four hundred dollars for the hotel I staying in. But it was totally worth it. That concert is what I imagined heaven to be like. So you flew across the country in order to not miss this concert. Yeah, I was afraid that just in case it was their last tour, I would die without seeing them, and I couldn't live with that.、Huh. Interesting. So, how do you feel like if you do miss a concert? So bummed out. So you get nervous or upset if there's one you can't go to. Yeah, definitely. This is all very interesting. I've been taking notes, and I don't mean to alarm you, but I just wanted to tell you that I've been researching, and I think that you might have a severe case of FOMO. Of what? FOMO. FOMO. Fear of missing out. I think that's right. But it's okay. We're here for you, and there is treatment for it. One down, a million more to go. I won't stop till everyone I care about is aware of the FOMO. You may think you're exempt, but I think we're all a little bit contaminated, and I think it is important to recognize. Because besides constantly comparing yourself to others and the burden of envy, anxiety, and insecurity, when you always fear missing out, all you really do is actually miss out. If you're always thinking about what you're not a part of, you'll miss out on what you actually are a part of. I'll admit, it is hard to be in just one place and not want to experience everything the world has to offer. Lamobo, that is, living our moments one by one. Like it? So today. Enjoy your day wherever you are and whoever you're with. I took the good times. I'll take the bad times. I take you just the way you are. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. When I'm coaching people in my um, practice, I the mind really is one of the first big barriers that has to has to be evaluated at least in order to create some movement in order to create a change. Um, it's not just trying to teach them skills. I can teach couples to talk. I can get them communicating. I can get them to maybe hold off before they just blow up and listen to somebody. But there are certain thoughts that are constantly stewing in our lives or in our minds. And those thoughts may um, deeply impact what you do, what you feel. So my basic belief as a coach is that our thinking, whether it's conscious or subconscious thoughts, whether you're actually intentionally thinking about the thought or whether it's just some, you know, some undercurrent belief that you have, it's going to generate feeling. Thoughts tend to generate feelings. Feelings tend to generate doing what you do. And doing tends to generate what you're becoming. And if what you're becoming doesn't jive with what you want to become, then you're going to be out of integrity, which will generate feeling, right, and thoughts. So the pattern goes, thinking, feeling, doing, becoming, over and over and over. So here's some thoughts that you want to make sure you you don't have running through your operating system. And, And just start questioning it, like, what made me go off right here? Why did I start to act this way? That's what I was doing, yelling, screaming, whatever, Um, just pulling away, ignoring my family or my spouse. Why was I doing that? Go back to the feeling behind it. There was something I was feeling. By the way, motivation for those that want to understand motivation. uh, Motivation is the feeling that generates the doing, right? Um, So – that's there's power in understanding the uh, the feeling and the doing. There's also power, also maybe more power in understanding the thinking behind the feeling. Um, here's an example: Do you tend to have a thought that you don't have a choice in life? You don't have a choice. I've got to do it. Don't even have a choice. I mean, I don't even want to do it, but I've got to go do this job, or I've got to go you know, take my kids to here and this place and that place. So if that is the thought that's underlying it um, and the belief, it's going to generate a feeling. And the feeling is probably obligated, forced. It's going to be an uglier feeling if you don't have a choice to do something, which will then generate how you go do it. Think of how you do something you didn't want to do. So a kid that throws a tantrum up to an adult that, you know, ruins a trip that they didn't even want to go on. Um, it, it's going to be acted out. So if you do you have a thought process that you're trapped, you don't want to do what you're doing. You don't want to be in the life you want to be you're in. You don't want to be in the marriage you, you're in. Another thought that a lot of people have is that life is easy or life should be easy. And then they're amazed every time it's not easy. So if that's the way that you if you have a belief that life should be easy and yours isn't, then you then you obviously think I got to change my life. I got to change it. And you might feel misery even though you got a pretty good life. It's just normal. It's hard. Another belief is um that uh the way it is now is the way it's always going to be. Right? 
so if it's bad now, some people believe it's just it's just that's your life. It's always going to be bad. Or do you believe, you know what? No, life's going to change. Just give it a couple of years. Give it a month. Give it a two. Give it a week. It's going to get better. Do you also believe that uh, everyone else has it better than you do? Right? There's people that believe everyone else just has it better than you do. Um, some people have a belief system that it's just too late, a value system, maybe something in their mind like it's too late. You know, it's too late to change my job. It's too late to become something that I want to become. Some call it just bad luck. You know, I just got bad luck. Bad luck. Everything I touch is just goes bad. Um, the sort of some some think of this optimist. You know, you know what. The situation, it's its going to get better. Some have that automatic, you know, reply. Some, no, 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 it's just going to be worse. But whatever your view is, it's yours. And if you, you're going to keep suffering the feelings that come from that thinking. And you're going to keep suffering the doing or the lack of doing that come from those feelings and those thoughts. So when I coach somebody, I always ask them to go back and try to evaluate the thought or the, the thought uh, the feeling, kind of the mood that drives you to keep doing what you're doing. And any time you spend looking at it is valuable. Trust me. Any time you spend recognizing the thought that's preceding a lot of these feelings you have, the better off you're going to have. You're going to actually find a way to turn this around. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As we talk about beauty um, and we talk about self-esteem, right? So we want to... We want to have this belief in ourself, but uh, we got to be really clear what self we're talking about. Because when you think of you, you are not just you. You are made up of a body. You're made up of a mind. You're made up of a spirit. You are made up of a bunch of different thoughts and paradigms and beliefs about who you are. So be really careful. Um as you try to grow self-esteem, you, you got to focus somewhere. And my concern is that many people spend the majority of their time trying to build self-esteem, probably working on only one of the three components of self-esteem, which is the body. So your body, a great tool, right? A great source, brings you the chemistry, you know, it allows you to feel the pleasure and the pain of the world. You can rip, you can get those ripped abs like I've got, you know, buns of steel, muscles galore, rippling. Okay, don't be rude. And you, you can have all of that going for you. You can be stronger than everyone else. You can be faster. You can uh, financially go make all the money you want to take care of your body and your body's needs. You can drive the nice car, something to put your body into. You can buy the best clothes. And interestingly, it won't necessarily make you feel better. It will for a while. But eventually, if you want true self-esteem, you're going to have to go deeper than the body, right? So eventually, you're going to want to – you're going to jump into your mind. And the mind is where you, you, know, you want to start you know, having some power. You want to be more popular, do you want some of the things that are less tangible, not a car necessarily, but you want prestige, you want popularity, you want people to like you. And you'll realize that your car's great, but it doesn't mean people actually like you. They might just use you for your car. So as you move into your mind, you're going to you're going to you're going to like it. Your mind likes, you know, looking good, it likes being popular. It likes having, you know, maybe not even 
you're not even going to sit there and like sit in your money and just play in all your money. That's the tangible stuff. But you just like knowing that you have more than others. So that becomes a mind game for you now. Now your mind is being satisfied because you're getting ahead supposedly in life. The problem with your mind, though, is um, you're never going to be good enough because eventually you're going to have a neighbor move in that will have more money than you. So your mind alone isn't where you're going to find self-esteem either. It's not going to be in your mind that you – because your mind's constantly going to be comparing you. And you're either going to have to be better or just worse than everywhere else. And your mind's going to kind of bifurcate it and make it an either or. So the true source of essence is always going to be in the spiritual side. Essence is your ability to have less and be okay with it. It's your ability to be present. Essence is that good feeling you feel when you are doing something that is noble and good that you love to be about. It's holding your grandchild. It's holding your child. It's that silent night in the middle of the night when you're just rocking your baby back to sleep and you just feel peace. It's when you're serving. It's when you're out in nature. That's where your true sense of who you are comes from. It's usually in the quiet times we find ourselves. It's not in the loud, busy dance halls or bars that you're going to find your true identity. Super fun. But in the end, you got to be okay with yourself. You got to know what your purpose is. You've got to feel some connection to a higher power. Your true self, your true esteem is going to come from knowing that why you're here on this earth and what you're doing here and being connected to some bigger purpose. And I'd also say being connected to a higher power. And you can go determine what that higher power is. But if we're not connected to it, then what can you esteem? The highest power I've or the highest esteem I have is knowing that I'm a child of some of God, of something bigger than myself. That brings me more self-confidence than anything I could do or have or say. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We do. We watch these shows or these television news moments where we hear of a child in a car, or lately it's even been animals. Um, I mean, it's always been animals, but now people are, these kids are dying, right? And apparently we are at a higher rate of deaths with children in cars this year than um, last year. We've already passed last year's totals of death of children in, in these, in cars that were left in cars. So, That's one of the reasons we wanted to focus on this topic. Also, I want you to notice that um, how quickly we are to judge and to be uh, so angry because of the innocence, right, of these these children. They didn't do anything. They didn't. They were innocent here. But one of the things to remember what uh, Dr. Diamond was teaching us, there's very universal issues at play here, and you have memory and you have battling, kind of dueling purposes in your memory. One memory is there to get you habitually to just keep doing the things you do. And another is, you know, the, the perspective memory to get you to, re, you know, don't forget this. But as for as mad as you are about somebody leaving, um, another parent leaving their child in the car, and you can't explain that or understand it, how many times have you personally been driving down the road habitually in your habitual uh, memory, and you don't even remember driving somewhere. You just got in the car and went to grandma's and put it on autopilot. 
And just think about that lack of awareness, right? Think about what happens when you get in autopilot. Yeah, sure, you'll never forget your child in the car, but you will drive 75 kind of brainlessly and, not, and you know, and be thinking of something else. So as quick as we are to all judge somebody that makes a mistake like that, and that's a – I'm not – I don't want to diminish that. That's an enormous mistake. And it is a mistake we can't make, but people do. And they will statistically, you know, millions of parents, they're going to make mistakes. Um, but your need to then crucify this person, your need to then – diminish them, to beat them up, and to get online and make comments like you're informed, like you would never make a mistake like that. I promise you, if we followed you long enough, you have. You do. All the time. If you forget your phone somewhere, if you forget to pick a child up from something, if you if you you're going to make a mistake. And that's the hard thing about being a human on this earth is we make mistakes and not all mistakes that we make are equal. Sometimes you make a mistake driving and you accidentally kill somebody and it ruins your life. And it's a mistake. It's a pure, simple mistake. So people make mistakes. Let's let's just recognize that you're part of that group, right? You're not part of the deity and God that doesn't make the mistake. You're part of the group that makes mistakes. So be careful how you judge one another, right? Hoping to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Some main concerns of this election have included economic growth and education. Our next guest believes that teaching entrepreneurship to youth is the key to solving both of those issues. With 30 years experience teaching at-risk youth and his organization for teaching entrepreneurship, Steve Mariotti has surmised his work in his book, An Entrepreneur's Manifesto. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm really glad to be on. This is, um, I think, I think this is a huge opportunity. I as a, I am an entrepreneur, but what I've been finding is, as I talk to you know some young adults, those that are that are actually entering college, there's there's kind of an inherent fear of starting your own thing versus getting in. You know, just get your job, do your job, and I would bet in um, kind of in in lower economic communities, there might be even more of a of a fear of of taking such a risk. Is that how did you get into teaching entrepreneurship and building your network for teaching entrepreneurship? Um, well, I got started in 1981. Um, I'm 63 now, so I've been working on in the field for 35 years, and um, I got mugged in September of 81. And went to a therapist, and uh, Albert Ellis was his name, and he recommended that I uh, go into the toughest schools in New York City and just begin teaching, which I did. And I totally overcame my post-traumatic stress disorder. I totally stopped thinking about the mugging and um, basically stayed as an educator of low-income youth 
for over three decades. So it's been a great, um, wonderful career for me. Huh. I mean, and, um, what, what do you see? What do you see with those low-income youth when it comes to uh, entrepreneurialism? Uh, I think that this is a huge breakthrough for our country and for the world. I've found that children that are born into poverty or children that are born with an illness or um, with a physical defect often are more capable of becoming entrepreneurs. Um, They have uh, a different view of risk. They don't view life in terms of hierarchies. Uh, which means that you have a boss and a boss's boss and a boss's boss and, you know, you judge yourself on your grades and what your SAT scores were and all that kind of stuff. But children that are, are born with a lot of pain in their lives and a lot of obstacles in their lives and it can be any income uh, because disease or depression or physical handicap um, it can also put one in a position of looking at markets in a very unique way. And you get a head start as far as the entrepreneurial mind frame. So I think that the the most um, market-oriented people in our our country are actually teenage, um, low-income African-American men. And between the ages of 15 and and 22, just to give you a, a practical example of the implications of that. Mm. And if people would poll at that age group and say, are you in favor of entrepreneurship and low taxes and less regulation? And do you think that, um, you know, everybody should be, uh, have the skills to start a small business? I think they poll, you know, uh, at the Mitt Romney level to give a practical example. Yeah. And I think that's a gold mine for our community that they don't want to go into the welfare system or, or um, uh, be part of a, a, a large state apparatus. Their heroes are all entrepreneurs. So I wanted to make that point. Oh, that's huge. And um, I mean, it's also cool because you, sometimes you'd see, you'll see somebody come out of uh, even that demographic you were just expressing, the Afri- African-American community, and you'll see maybe an entertainer or an athlete that's come out. And they don't just come out um, and you know make money as an athlete, but they turn it into like a major mega enterprise. I, I look at just people yeah. that uh, Magic Johnson is, a, is an enormous business owner, and he wasn't just a basketball yeah, player. Michael Jordan and yeah. Derek Jeter. Yeah. You know, it's, um, and people miss that. Uh, somehow the media isn't picking up on that. But that's a huge advantage asset we have in our country, is that many people that we've assumed weren't going to be interested in business is the exact opposite. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I've also found... Oh, for, go ahead. No, go ahead. Though, I've also found, um, I I did a program for two years with children that were terminally ill, and I found that the nurses would come up to me and say their rate of depression would drop by 90%. And then I taught a program for three years with young people that were paralyzed from either birth or from an accident, and they had the highest rates of business formation that I've ever seen in my career. Out of 46, you know, uh, young people that had to use a wheelchair or 
or something even more um, intense than that, we ended up having 37 ongoing businesses of at least $3,000 a year. So there's a a huge amount of business acumen and business desire in communities that we never think about. It's a hidden asset. Mm. And that's why I think if we can tap into that, we're going to have a renaissance in this country and and around the, and, and around the world as well. It really makes sense. You, you're you're saying we need to target the people that might seem like the least um, desirable to target, except they're desirable because they they understand conflict, they understand a hard life, and they're willing to kind of take the risks that you need to take to be an entrepreneur. Yes, and one other thing, too, whenever you are put into a difficult situation from either health or poverty or, and we all go through it at times in our life, but you see the world from a different perspective. And if those people are taught to look at that perspective as a comparative advantage or a potential comparative advantage, um, that can be a gold mine. Mm. They'll see things, inventions or processes or services that one would only see if one was in a bad neighborhood or in a hospital or in a community that was not doing well. My favorite economist, F.A. Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize in 74, and I was fortunate enough to um, um, be his um, assistant for four months. Oh, wow. But he always write about the concept of unique knowledge of time and place. And he'd say that every human being has unique knowledge of time and place. All that means is a particular time and a particular place. You might want a hot dog stand. It's nothing complicated. But so that that meant that every human being could make their living in a market economy. Hmm. And I've always agreed with that. Because they bring a unique knowledge about what needs what might go somewhere in their world that could be profitable. Exactly. And they become the specialist yeah. in that unique time period and a unique set of pain or unique uh, issues. I've written a lot about it, and um, I want to make a little plug for my, yeah. my um, uh, two books that have sold really well this year, and I'm really hoping they'll continue to sell because I think they can help a lot of people. One is an entrepreneur's manifesto, which makes the case for an entrepreneurial revolution worldwide as a way to keep our democracies and to solve problems and to kill poverty once and for all. And the other book that sold almost a million copies worldwide is The Young Entrepreneur's Guide to starting and running a business. Hmm. And um, that I did as founder of the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, and I'm now a fellow at Philadelphia University, which has incredible programs to help people create products and to market them. It's one of my favorite uh, schools uh, in the whole world, frankly. You know what, let's – two great books. Um, I'd love to come back and talk about the manifesto more and find out – what are some of the points? What are some of the lessons that uh, that make up the Entrepreneur's Manifesto? And, and what is this movement you're trying to start and what we can do kind of more at a local level with our own kids, our own families? 
Uh, it is such an interesting idea. We'll take a break. More with Steve Mariotti and his book, An Entrepreneur's Manifesto. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead better lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us on the phone is Steve Mariotti. He founded the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship and is also the author of many books. One book we're talking about today uh, is An Entrepreneur's Manifesto, where he's he's trying to, um, I guess, motivate and, and, and instigate a, a movement where we take underprivileged youth – um, also, maybe people that we we tend to discard in our community because of um, just you name it, because of lack of opportunity, because of illness or sickness or any kind of uh, just disability. And instead, let's empower those people because they tend to be ideal for creating opportunities of entrepreneuring um, to to go out and and make a new life and really really create a revolution financially for the inner cities as well. Um, am, am I on the right uh, mark here, Steve? Trying to describe your mission. Absolutely, um, you hit all the key points. And in my book, an Entrepreneur's Manifesto, um, I developed the Entrepreneur's Bill of Rights, which. Um, I don't think it's ever been done before. At least I couldn't find it in the literature. But it's, it's things like the right to have a fair and simple tax code, uh, the right to fail, the right to seek new opportunities, the right to be different, um, the uh, right to destroy uh, uh, another business. And by destroy, I, I mean that in an economic sense. But like, yeah, take compete. Right compete. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's a beautiful thing for the consumer and the right to create and, of course, the right to not be over-regulated. We've got um, so many issues with taxation and regulation which don't disturb wealthy people because they have lawyers and accountants. But for somebody who's in poverty, the tax code is incomprehensible. Mm. It's just terrible. And many of the regulations prevent low-income people from starting businesses um, because the existing businesses, the existing uh, establishment doesn't want the competition. And I, I just think that's unethical and wrong. We need to get our tax code right. We need to deregulate. We need to get entrepreneurial education into every school system starting at kindergarten or first grade. And I, I want to tell your um, listeners a, a very quick story. Yeah. Uh, a year and a half ago, I was invited to Cambodia and to Vietnam. Um, and I was invited by the governments to give advice on how to end poverty. And as re- you recall, uh, Vietnam is a socialist or communist government. Right. So. I, I went with great uh, trepidation and, and, frankly, reluctance. But when I got there, the first thing I said, you've got to get out of, of communism, socialism, and you've got to get your tax code right. It turns out that Vietnam 
has a 10% flat tax and that low-income people don't pay any tax. And they are growing at almost 8% a year. Oh, wow. Which means they're doubling every nine years. Now, they have a lot of issues with civil rights. They haven't learned the Bill of Rights issues that we that we've been pretty good at. But every country that gets their tax code low, simple, and fair and makes the entrepreneur into a hero, which is what she is and what he is, a job creator, a problem solver, those countries over the next 100 years are just going to boom. They're going to take off, aren't they? It's um, Is it – I guess, Steve, so part of the dilemma is if we want to empower – these kind of um, almost the forgottens, right? The ones that we would never consider to be economic powers or even opportunists, uh, those that live in poverty um, or I guess uh, or minority status. Is it there's a lot of legislation that could take place and really, I guess, needs to take place to make your manifesto work? Absolutely. Um, the big thing is taxation and regulation, but also the school systems, I think, need to become, you know, uh, a voucher-driven where the parents and the students are determining, um, you know, where the capital uh, flows to and let schools compete and teachers, teachers compete because I think that would really help education. And as a lifelong teacher, I think it would really help my field, which has been kind of nationalized and, and, and hurt in many ways because of that. But it's, it's not the power to legislate. It's the power to de-legislate is, mm. is what I think we need over the next uh, 20 or 30 years. And um, I'm a big optimist about the future. And uh, particularly in your part of the country, um, you, you know, you guys are, have huge opportunities and a great respect for the uh, the entrepreneurial process. And you should be very, very proud of that. Oh, that, I mean, that's really good to know because sometimes you wonder uh, how how this gets ahead. I, I personally, as an entrepreneur, it's it's one of the hardest things I I've experienced because I you don't know going in. You just have a dream, right? You just have an idea. Um, but then you you do you have to you have to face the taxes and you have to face the, to make sure it's legal and then competition and then cash flow. There's there's a lot of these issues. How do you teach all of this? Is this a course that you'd propose? Um, how do you teach it? If somebody's gone to MBA school, it's still hard. How do you teach somebody that's just struggling without a lot of education? Um, you are totally right. One of the hardest things to do uh, in the world, any place in the world, is to start a business and keep it going. And it's also a political act. I think the most political revolutionary act you can do in a positive sense uh, that encourages liberty and, and self-reliance is to, is to start a business. Um, the younger you start, the better people get at it. I was an elementary school teacher for four years, and I taught every business concept in first grade Mm. with the exception of net present value, which is, you know, uh, a complex topic that you pretty much get in MBA school. 
But I found that it's just like soccer or golf or football, baseball or science or writing or speaking. Human beings get very good at those things, primarily because they start as children. Um, and tragically, globally, the um, education for entrepreneurs has been primarily passed down from parents to children. Hmm. That the school system has not said, oh my heavens, we need to teach every child how to own and how to be an entrepreneur. Because it's not just being an entrepreneur, it's also the craft of owning the output of the entrepreneurial process. Otherwise, you end up creating wealth for someone else. So making those high priorities in our school systems, everywhere in the world, not just uh, here in America, but everywhere in the world, I think we can create great abundance, a lot of happiness, and destroy poverty once and for all. Mm. No, I I agree. And I, and I think, boy, to put it back, to put the power back in the hands of the people on that level um, could be incredibly empowering. I mean, that that's... To, to have to have your own ability to influence and know how to do it and know that you can influence your own family's lives, your own careers, and your own financial destiny. That's so freeing. What would you suggest as we as we kind of go forward and um how how do I get my kids like you say you teach a lot of this to your kids. How do you do it? How do we get it instilled and down to the to the ground level with my kids? Um, I would I would start with the literature. Um, I've written a, a, you know 38 books for children. You can uh, find all of them on the internet. Uh, they were written both for in school and for uh, children that are homeschooled. But you just go to Amazon.com and you type my last name in, which is M A R I O T T I, like Marriott yeah. uh, Hotel, but with an I at the end. And my first name is Steve. And uh, there's a great textbook that took me 20 years to write, and uh, it's um, uh, called Entrepreneurship, How to Start Knowing Your Business. And that's the top uh, junior high and and high school textbook. Hmm. Uh, And it's used by the organization that I founded, um, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, which is uh, based in New York City and run by this incredible young man uh, named Sean Osborne. But I encourage communities to start their own programs, and it's not that hard. You'll find a local person who's had small business experience, likes working with young people, and get together a board of advisors, order some curriculum, take them on field trips to local businesses, take them to a wholesaler, and then take them to a flea market, and then always, every year, have them write a business plan. And all that stuff is outlined in the books I've, I've, hmm. I've written. And um, I, I encourage people to, to actually start their, their own programs and just call it the Young Entrepreneurs Program of, of uh, Brigham Young, yeah. Young Entrepreneurs Program of Celine or whatever. And NIFTI uh, is great as a resource. Our uh, website is www. Uh, uh, nfte. Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship dot com. Um, it's a nonprofit, but we use dot com. And then a school that I think um, 
people should look more at a college is, is Philadelphia University, uh, where I'm a fellow at now. And it's an incredible school where every young person makes something and learns how to sell it and mm. to market it. It's um, a genius. And that a is. lot of people uh, not um, out west in particular have not been aware of it. And I, I want to raise the awareness for their uh, type of multi-disciplinary um, and experiential education. It's, so, I mean, the, the interesting thing, there are resources. I guess this would be a, an ideal thing for school teachers, uh, you know, and, and just families, parents, clubs. Like you could create a club. You could create uh, something in, an, in a school. And uh, what a great way to give back. I mean, if you just had one or two real businesses come out of that a year, how empowering. Absolutely. And I even look at it more fundamentally than that. If, if you have every child in the state do a simple five-page business plan on their comparative advantage, that would change the state as much as anything a politician could do, hmm. in my opinion, or any one person could do. And you just make it into a contest, and and you have a, a three-day period where every child focuses on a business idea, either individually or, or as a group. I'm trying to get that going globally, where every child in the world, and there are one billion children that live in poverty. It's horrible, and and they're recruited to be you know terrorists and all this stuff, where they're normal people, just like, you know, you and I, yeah. and neighbors, and, and just want to live uh, uh, normal lives and create uh, value and wealth. But in, when you're in poverty, it's so painful, you'll do almost anything to get out of it. So I look at this movement as a global movement for every child in the world. And if if we, even every year, every uh Every one day or two days a year, every child wrote a business plan and tried to sell one thing for a dollar. I think psychologically, we would we make uh, huge breakthroughs in a, a lot of um, uh, problems that we have on a global basis. Mm. No, I agree. That's powerful. Okay, well, I think uh, it's the beginning, isn't it? it? Steve, we appreciate you being with us. What a great thing I think you're offering uh, the the people of um, I mean our kids to be able to just get that they can be a creative source and that they already could have a competitive advantage. Uh, wow, changing the paradigm as well as the economics of our country. Go check out uh, the book and and the website nfte.com Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship and also go look up uh, Steve's book. The, about uh, the Entrepreneur's Manifesto and Entrepreneur's Manifesto plus all of his other uh, materials for learning entrepreneurship and teaching entrepreneurship by Steve Mariotti. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up hour number two of the program. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What a great lesson to teach to teach your kids to be an entrepreneur. 
That's a big deal. You can make some moolah. I'm just, I, I'm just trying to teach them to clear the table, put it in the sink. <laughs> My daughter learned to, to be a music teacher at age 14 and has now turned it into a big business. You just teach them young. Then, then it's like, no, yeah, you got to pay for your own stuff now. I keep telling my son, he works at a car wash, you know, you could open your own detailing shop, start with my car. Not interested, apparently. <sighs> oh, well. Okay, so here's a fun one uh, from one of our uh, great producers, Leanna Tan. She says, being a middle child comes with some stigmas. You're not the oldest. You're not the baby of the family either. Plus, thanks to the middle child syndrome, people assume you're more likely to feel left out or neglected. Leanna Tan draws upon her own personal experience and explains the upside of being the middle child. I grew up the third of five children, and it was great. I always felt like I had the best birth order position because I had a bunch of great people surrounding me. But when I grew up and people heard I was a middle child, they were always like, Oh, I'm sorry. That must have been hard for you. And I was really confused because I had no idea people viewed middle children like this. And then I heard about middle child syndrome, like it was some sort of disease. Wow, people must really not know what it's like to be a middle child. They must not realize how cool it is. And maybe you're a middle child yourself and you've forgotten all the benefits your birth order really comes with. So here, let me help you out. Here are five perks of being a middle child. One. You're the focus of every family photograph. Look at me now. Look at me now. People think that middle children get looked over, but in reality, we're actually the center of attention. Walk into any living room, and who is it that you see first in that family portrait hanging over the fireplace? The middle child, right smack dab in the center of the family. We're pretty much the family mascot. You get the biggest wardrobe. No one really understands the beauty of hand-me-downs and hand-me-ups like middle children. Being the middle of five, I was never too small or too big for any of my siblings' clothes. I got to wear all my older sister's hand-me-downs, but still wasn't too big to borrow all my little sister clothes as well. And now that my little brother's bigger than me, I inherit some of his t-shirts too. You never feel left out. There's always somebody to hang out with you. You're not too young to hang out with the older kids or too old to hang out with the younger kids. It worked out great when we went to theme parks because if ever I was daring enough, I could just hop in line for the big coasters with my older siblings. But if I wanted to play it safe, I'd just say I was going to watch my younger siblings and hop in line for the kiddie rides. The pressure is off. You don't get the blame for arguing with your younger siblings all the time because you should know better. And you don't have to deal with the fear of having no idea what you're doing and the pressure of doing everything right. So your siblings don't take after your horrible example. I must say, it is nice knowing that there's always someone who has done things before me. Like going to college or learning to ride a two-wheeler. It's kind of the universe to reserve parental nagging for older siblings. You get away with a lot. I can't remember the last time I got up to refill my own water at a family function. Every Thanksgiving, everyone is so busy talking that I just drink their water while they're chatting, and they never even notice. I need a you like water, like breath, like 
of course, there's the fact that any time an older sibling passes on a responsibility to you, there will always be an even younger sibling you can pass it on to. So, I don't know what all the big fuss about middle child syndrome is. I think it should be called middle child privilege. Just prepare yourself for a lot of advice giving and peacekeeping. So all you middle children, go master the art of drink stealing and enjoy your extended wardrobe. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. Thank you, Leanna. Well done. Good stuff. Hey, uh, it didn't take long for a University of Michigan student to take advantage of the newfound ability to designate a personal pronoun on the campus roster. So when you sign up for school and class, you get to now at the University of Michigan choose your own pronoun, right? So you could be, I guess, what, like Mr.? Yes. Mrs.? I talked to you before about the the Zer. Yeah, Zer, Z. Zer, Z. So Zer's kind of the non-male, non-female. Yes. Zer, Z. Monsieur. Monsieur, you could go in. Um, he chose to go with uh, the lesser, the the lesser known, at least here in the United States. He wanted to be called uh, uh, His Majesty. <laughs> UM University of Michigan announced Thursday that students could designate a personal pronoun. Grant Strobel chose His Majesty. And uh, now everybody, when when they read his name, like on the rolls, they have to say, uh, His Majesty Grant Strobel. I'm not sure if the sound comes with it. It should. Or at least he should have a, an app or something on his phone so he yeah. can play it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? If every time you did a roll call, they're like, ah, oh, jeez. Okay, so uh, is His Majesty Mr. Grant Strobel here? Yes, I am, sir. Present. I think that would make – I think they've created a problem. They have. They're trying to be inclusive of every single person and every single preference yeah. of how you want to be designated. But in doing so, it's gotten to kind of a ridiculous level. Well, and so does the teacher like not read it? But then you're – if I if somebody really wanted to be called Z or Zer or yeah. Mr. Mr. or Mrs. depending yeah. on your – whatever you want. Yeah. It's, I, so he does this to just kind of protest. <laughs> and, well, they, and they, I guess they don't have to use it because they can see that it's not what they're intending it to be. But then he could lodge a protest because they're not following it. their own program. I am royalty. Yeah. What would your designation be, dude? The dude. Just well, the well dude. he makes us call him Doctor. Doctor. That'd be called Doctor. See, I mean, there's it's right there. Oppression. His His Excellency, Doctor <laughs> Matthew Townsend, the High Potentate. Yes. Mm-hmm. There you go. Who put the po in potentate. There you go. You're the po-po? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> the po-po. With the momo. Okay, hour number two. It's in the books. Stick with us, folks. We'll be back. More fun. More ideas to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Mm-hmm.